From halfway around the world, an Egyptian archaeologist is desperate to uncover the mystery that led to her younger sister's death at the hands of a suicide bomber in Cairo. The archaeologist, Rose Hatfield. The book, A Pure Heart by Rajia Hasib. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! Hey, this is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Each week, readers, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book we're reading. And this week, the theme is The Butterfly Effect. Alexis. Yeah. Let me ask you something. Okay. Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? What do you think? The flap of a butterfly's wings. Ooh, I'm going to say no because I don't know no better. But it sounds like it <laughs> no, could happen. Neither of us are scientists, but it sounds like it could happen. Yeah. And a lot of our thinking has been molded by pop culture. Have you ever seen the movie Back to the Future? I have. What is the premise of that movie as you remember it? They have to go back to the future to set the <laughs> clock right at the right time. I don't remember what they were fixing, but I know they they had to fix something. Yeah. So it could be just right. To make the present what they wanted it to be, they had to go to the past to create small changes that would eventually have a domino effect and they could just like steer the present into whatever they wanted it to be by by changing the past. Great movie, by the way. (laughs) I'll take your word for it. But that's a common (laughs) trope in pop culture. It's in a lot of movies. Um, Stephen King's... um, 112263 comes to mind. Did you ever read? I never heard of that. Okay, that's where um oh, I don't want to spoil. Well, the protagonist goes back in time to stop the JFK assassination. Okay, okay. Um and so again, this keeps coming up, this idea that if you go back into the past and change one small thing, the present would be um significantly different changed in itself Mm -hmm. well the answer to the initial question i posed may surprise you and we'll get to that later oh i'm (laughs) on the edge of my seat okay (laughs) this question was first presented by mathematician edward norton lawrence um best known as the founder of modern chaos theory um chaos theory kind of like malcolm yeah from from jurassic Jurassic park Park. (laughs) okay okay and that's a branch of mathematics focusing on the behavior of dynamical systems that are highly sensitive to initial conditions and that sounds like a lot of words but um we'll break it down so um in reality compared to the way pop culture presents what what is now deemed as the butterfly effect. In reality, what Lawrence's goal was, was to prove the unpredictability of some complex dynamical systems, such as those found in weather patterns. Oh, However, this uh, idea that we can wield the past to create the present we want is not what Lawrence is, was trying to prove, nor what he proved. Instead, his theory challenged those established years earlier by men such as Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, that suggested all nature is connected and predictable like mm, a clock. OK, so the idea before. um well, this had been presented um, a few times, but I will say Edward Norton Lawrence made it popular. Before Lawrence um, presented this idea in a very eloquent way, um, the accepted theory was that th- all the weather systems, everything found in nature 
Um, the idea was that these are all signs <laughs> that nature is predictable to a T. We just don't have the formulas. We haven't discovered them yet to in, um, intelligently predict what will happen in nature. So then is that what they base the weather on? So Truly? according to Lawrence, you can't really predict the weather. And we know that's true. Right. Because we Chicago. get so many wrong yeah. right <laughs> because it's chaos it mm. is chaos um one thing i wanted to point out i thought was uh, cool is that the passage of time as we perceive it it doesn't really exist when you really think about it so the idea that i lost 15 minutes a day looking for something what do you base your time on the sun going down well, the clock. and rising again the 15 minutes what is the, the clock? clock based on I, I don't know. I want to know the answer to that. Do you have it? How, are you going to reveal it today? So, so all, all the theory um, says is that um, there is chaos beyond what we know. And chaos, not in the form of complete disastrous disorder, but disorder in a way that we as humans don't know how to organize it. Okay. It's what we don't mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And time is the progression toward what we don't know. And the um and moving away from what we do. I know what the time is based on: the rising and setting of the sun. <laughs> okay. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Okay. So, so Give me a minute. <laughs> I'll come to the answer. So as long as we can never predict the future, which we can't and right. won't be able to, then time will exist. The closest thing we have to a true measurement of time is the measurement of disorder. <laughs> what? So if the progression of time is nothing but a journey toward chaos, it makes sense for small changes to affect the future by amplifying chaos. So Lawrence found okay. that the smallest change in the preliminary conditions created a different outcome in weather predictions. So if he changed a number, then the final number in a um, equation would be drastically different than if he hadn't changed one of those factors, one of those numbers. Well, let's apply it to something we all know business, for example. Okay. Um, when a business first starts that first year, if a business has funding and they're able to apply their think tanks and all their brain juices to creating a better business, we know this as podcasters and mm -hmm. we got some businesses of our own. Mm -hmm. If we have unlimited funding, we can just better our business. Right. And that means within the first year, not only are we doing better, even if we're not profitable, Amazon, for example, wasn't profitable for a long time, right. but they had the funding to better the business and to think one step ahead. That means now 20 years later, or however old Amazon right. is, they are the business on earth. Right. That's so true. And that's all caused by those conditions in the beginning. If they had been struggling more and more worried about uh, financing, if a business in general, I won't apply it to Amazon. I don't really know. I know he's starting a basement selling books or a garage or whatever. Garage. But, um, but if a business is books. worried about funding, then perhaps even if they get that funding, let's say in their third year, they may not be able to keep up with a business that never had to worry about funding. Say that one more time. Yeah. So um, you have a business, Alexis Co. And I have a business, Kari Co. Kari Co. is broke. Mm -hmm. It's a dream. So I'm always pitching people, pinching, pitching um, VCs, trying to get cash. You, however, have like millions. Endless Your family cash. is. Yeah. Okay. Cash is not a thing to you. Mm -hmm. So you can spend your time hiring the right people, building greater um, machines to move your product along and thinking of ideas to be a better business. Mm -hmm. By year three, 
I have the resources maybe that you have, but you've already had a three year head start on right. me. Mm-hmm. I get that. Yeah. So um, even if we on paper are the same after three years, that three year head start makes you poised to beat me at our game if we sell the same product mm-hmm. next year and the mm-hmm. year after that until mm-hmm. you are the dominant business. Because I have more resources. Because you started with more resources. More resources. Mm-hmm. So those initial factors can affect the outcome in a great way as time progresses, as we progress toward chaos. Okay. It just gets more and more wild. So if I can... Questions. No, I don't know. <laughs> so if I can take this... Back to the book. The book talks about the butterfly effect. Mm -hmm. It talks about how one thing affects another, right? Mm -hmm. And so this guy that you mentioned, his theory Mm -hmm. is not what, um, what what did you call Um, modern, what we think of it as today. So the way it's applied in the book is accurate. Because no one's going back in time to change the present. Okay, it's the movies that made yeah, it that. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah, but in our story today, uh, the protagonist wonders if she could go back in time and change one thing, what would the outcome be today? Mm-hmm. And it's true that the outcome would change because the factors would be different. Yeah. That led to that outcome. Yep. So if you introduce me to someone and that person leads me down a path I didn't expect years and years later, you might not even talk to that person anymore. But because you introduced me to them and I continued my life, my path with that person in my life, knowing you and knowing that person is almost the same because Mm. I knew you. I knew this person, whatever happens between us is in a way affected by you. Yeah. Affected by you, caused by you. Caused caused Uh by you so it's interesting when you think of um like someone hit my car uh when i was paying a bill Mm -hmm. that i'd be dragging my feet usually to pay Mm -hmm. because it don't affect my credit (laughs) so i I paid that bill early if i had not paid that bill early you would not have got that car hit and that bugged me all day why did i pay that bill early that ain't me (laughs) (laughs) i was just paying bills early paying bills early for what yeah, and what because is the of that, basis? <laughs> another example of butterfly of the butterfly effect, or what we'll uh, call it in this podcast, is Hitler's rejection from art school. Not once, but twice. Oh. If he had continued to be a Bohemian student, hey. a terrible one, I hear. Hey. <laughs> perhaps he would have, yeah, dabbled in watercolors and not genocide. <laughs> and I'll include my sources. Um, uh, in the show notes because okay. there's some really interesting stuff out there that um, is interesting on a positive note I wanted to talk about one butterfly effect uh, that touched my heart and that's the Chernobyl volunteers are you familiar I know Chernobyl right but I don't know the volunteer portion of it so May 4th 1986 I didn't either um, just a few days after Chernobyl happened, mechanical engineer Alexi, mm, uh, I want to say Ananenko, senior engineer Valery mm, Bespalov, and shift supervisor Boris Baranov stepped forward to undertake a mission that many considered to be suicide. And if they weren't successful, over half of Europe would be uninhabitable even today Whoa. for hundreds of thousands of years. If, if, if they were not successful, so they volunteered, they raised their hands. They were told, we'll do this thing. And if they were told, if you fail, most of Europe, 
people won't be able to live on it That's for insane. hundreds of thousands of years. If something happened to you, your family is taken care of. So dressed in wetsuits and acute, equipped with just a flashlight, the three volunteers jumped into the darkness of the basement below the explosion and went in search of crucial valves. And the events that follow have been turned into a modern myth. For decades after the event, it was widely reported that the three men swam through radioactive water in near darkness, miraculously locating the valves even after their flashlight had died. <gasps> Escaped, but were already showing signs of acute radiation sy- uh, syndrome and sadly succumbed to radiation poisoning oh, wow. a short while later and then were buried in lead coffins. So because they found those valves, and they stopped the, that explosion from being worse than it was. And wow. we can go to like Europe and stuff and travel and have a new podcast about travel coming soon because of three men. I got to look at that. Did they make a movie out of it? It only seems I bet. right. I bet. Right. We'll look into it. Oh, yeah. Good. Sounds Check good. that out. Mm-hmm. So I hope that do you have any questions about the butterfly effect? I hope I um, explained it superficially as much as possible. <laughs> this is oxymoron. Yo, you know, I can't explain it back to you. <laughs> For sure. That's not going to happen. No, that has to do with everything, how my brain works. Nothing about what you do. But I want to hear your explanation of it. Oh, ah, okay. Listen, it's like the book says, it's if I could go back in time and make one change. How, how does that affect the present? Mm hmm. But it's not in a lot of movies and um, I'm only going by this book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, no, that's no problem. So uh, a lot of times in pop culture, the butterfly effect is a tool that you can use to make the present whatever you want. You can change this one thing. The time machine. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is not what it is. But it's not the idea that something in the past could dramatically affect the present is the butterfly effect. Yeah. In fact, the writer of Fahrenheit 451. Yes, 451, Ray Bradbury. I found this interesting. Before the butterfly effect was presented as a theory by Lawrence, Ray Bradbury had wrote a book called A Sound of Thunder. Actually, it's a fictional story. I won't say a whole book. Um, But in it, (laughs) one of the protagonists um, goes back in time and tries to kill a T-Rex despite his guide telling him not to. The T-Rex is shot um, by the guide, actually, because the protagonist couldn't do it. The bullets are removed from the T-Rex and they go to the present. Then they go back in the past and it's dramatically different. Language is different. Um, some violent dictator is like running the earth. And because he shot the... Because he stepped on a butterfly... While he was fighting the T-Rex. What? So that makes me think, where did the butterfly effect come from? Because that predates the um, butterfly effect. Yeah. Very interesting. We're leaving this uh, theme of the week with more questions than answers. But if you take away anything from it, um, I would just say that the butterfly effect is not how we how I understood it uh, through movies and pop culture. It's not. Something that's you go back in the past, change this, and then the the present will be different. You can never go back in the past. So that is never a factor when it comes to this theory. Mm. We are always progressing toward the unknown and moving away from the known. Well, it's I think it's very interesting. And I'm going to find out 
the movies they made about it, even though you said that's the wrong way to look at I it. I prefer the wrong way. It's more entertaining. Well, I think I need to have that <laughs> wrong way so I can understand the right way. Right. I think no, it's that the makes only perfect way. sense. Mm-hmm. Should we yeah. take a break? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps you can give us um, some context about Rajia Hasib and her inspiration for a pure heart. You know, I had a tough time finding information about her, so I only have a snippet. Um, She was born and raised in Alexandria, Egypt. She moved to U.S. at the age of 23, and she earned a degree in architecture from the University of Alexandria. Um, Then she went back to school 10 years later to get a BA and an MA in English writing and literature at Marshall University. She um, was she was also a part time instructor at Marshall University, and she taught intro to creative writing on post-colonial literature. She lives in West Virginia with her husband and children. That's what I know about Rajia. Are there some biological aspects um, in the main character of this book? Do you, I didn't. Did you find that? I couldn't find anything. Um, okay. But I, just that she was from the area, that she was born okay. and raised there. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Now, can you please give us a no spoilers, uh, a spoiler free brief synopsis of A Pure Heart? Okay. A woman seeks to understand who her sister was and why she died outside the police headquarters in Cairo. Kari, who do you think would enjoy reading this book? Yeah, we uh, read a book, I believe, two seasons ago that took place on the border of Mexico. And it was a type of story that... Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. What was the name of it? Oh, my goodness. That book was from the same collection this book is from. Oh, so you stole this book also from your friend? Yeah. Don't lend Alexis books, please. (laughs) She's a thief. Well, anyway, um, we'll we'll find the name of that book. But the um, this story really reminded me of that in that it was a very un I didn't expect to be taken in by the strong character development as much as I as I was. And we'll get to more of that in the verdict, how I felt about the book overall. But as far as character development and the lives of these characters, I was really into it. So um, and and I like how the author put her own culture, her own um, ethnicity. She wove that into the story very beautifully. Um, So I felt like I was traveling while reading this book and getting to know, right, getting to know Mm -hmm. people on a very deep level. Um, If you had told me this was nonfiction, I could believe it. (laughs) That's how well the characters were developed. And what about you, Alexis? What were your first thoughts of this book? Okay, so the book I think we're talking about is Prayers for the Stolen. Yes. Thank you. Prayers for the Stolen. Mm -hmm. This book reminded me of, of that story. Okay, yeah. So again, the friend gave me books. I was supposed to return to the library and I kept them (laughs) for a really long time during the pandemic. And I read this one. So it's been sitting, waiting to be uh, 
shared with you all and finally did. So I was excited to read it. I was like, that's an interesting title. wonder what that's about. So when I got into those first couple pages, you know, there's this dramatic thing that happens. So you're interested to know what happens next. And so I was intrigued from the jump. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And, and it's not like on Jurassic Park where the first chapter is full of so much action <laughs> that you just want right. to see what happens next. Also, Dan Brown, however you feel about him, he really tries to end every chapter on a cliffhanger to keep you dragging through the book, no matter how slow the plot is moving, because it ended with a cliffhanger. You must know how the next chapter starts. This is different in that there are no cliffhangers. This is just storytelling, essentially uh, essential storytelling. And that's... um. It's just a beautiful talent to see. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. Now, if you're ready, we'll take a deep dive into A Pure Heart. Great name, by the way, for this novel. The New York Times, August 25th, 2016. Suicide bomber kills nine in Egypt. A suicide bomber detonated an improvised explosive device at a security checkpoint outside of the police headquarters in Cairo, killing three police officers and six civilians and injuring dozens more. Egypt's police spokesman said the bomber had an arrest record and had gained some fame two years ago when an American journalist interviewed him for a series of profiles that appeared in the Times. The bomber is not known to have ties to larger terrorist groups and is believed to have acted alone. The bombing is the latest in a series of attacks that have occurred sporadically since Egypt's 2011 revolution. Previous incidents have mostly targeted military personnel stationed in the Sinai Peninsula, where militant groups loyal to ISIS are present, but attacks on police checkpoints are also common. Militants in Egypt blame the state's security apparatus for the crackdown on extremists. A statement issued by the Ministry of Interior Affairs vowed that tightened security measures are being put into effect. Part one. So on August 25th, 2016, as the article says, a suicide bomber killed nine people in Egypt, including Rose's sister, Gamila. Now, it's Rose. It's Rose. Oh, that's hard to say. It's Rose's last night in Egypt and she's waiting for her parents to fall asleep so she can sneak into her sister's bedroom and steal everything (laughs) they once shared together. She goes through her sister's belongings. She sets aside two T-shirts, a small jewelry box, a string of black um, prayer beads, anything she deems potentially significant she took with her. She also takes a teacup that's made of fine china with butterflies on them and a newspaper article featuring the boy with dark piercing eyes, a turquoise stone on a gold chain, a stack of unopened mail and all the photos she can find. Since her sister died 10 days ago, Rose has been obsessed with the little things that turn into a big things. For example, this interview um, of, the, of the boy, uh, boy yeah. with dark piercing eyes pigeons. led to a suicide bombing, her marriage leading to her sister's death. Even though everyone says her sister's death was really 
a case of it being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Rose does not believe that. So the next morning, as her parents um, are sitting on the balcony of her apartment, uh, their apartment, she's in Egypt. Rose gets them tea and asks her mom if she ever had a teacup with butterflies on them. And her parents said no. And her parents don't know who had a China teacup with butterflies on them. So uh, that leaves Rose wondering that her sister would have, yeah, why would she have it? And then it was wrapped in tissue paper and placed in a cardboard box. She wanted to know it where it like came from. It seemed like she carried it delicately, like it meant something to her. And if it didn't come from her parents, mm-hmm. where did this come from? So obviously Rose didn't have a relationship with her sister where they talked about everything. And now that her sister's gone, she's yeah. going through her belongings, trying to find who her sister Trying was. To piece it together. Essential things about her she doesn't mm-hmm. even know. She's kind of embarrassed to to admit that to herself. Yeah. Yeah. So when Rose returns to her apartment in New York, she takes her sister's things out of the suitcase, hides them under the bed, concealing them with a yoga mat and goes to sleep. When she awakes, she sorts through her sister's belongings. She's jet lagged, you guys. She she had to take a nap. <laughs> so why is she hiding nap. these things <laughs> so, now that she's home out of the country? Yeah. Yeah, she's hiding them from her mm-hmm. husband, actually, She because she doesn't want to talk about this, her sister's death with her husband. So she sorts and labels all the things and even gives them a serial number. This is what she does in her day-to-day work. So this process is soothing to her. When her husband, Mark, arrives, she allows him to hug mm. her, but um, she doesn't make eye contact with him. And then he begins his small talk, which she knows is out of character for him. And she starts to feel sorry for him. But then she starts to think about her mother on the on the balcony and how frail she looks. And she doesn't think Mark needs a hug. She's connecting Mark with the death of her sister. And as much as she wants to have pity for him, she's like, look how we suffer. Mm, he can suffer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mark wants to talk to Rose and help her, but Rose will not let him into that process. And so as one of the things they're doing is, I guess she's putting a box away and he's like, let me help you. She's like, no. And she pushes in there and then she hits her face and her nose starts to bleed. And so she's, and and again, Mark is still constantly trying to help her. So the next day Rose returns to work. She has a, postdoctorate fellowship at the Met in their Egyptian art department. And she supports her supervisor as they prepare for a new exhibit on the on ancient Egypt set to launch in a couple years. The focus of the exhibit is regular people, not the pharaohs that are usually the focus. Her job is to help pick out artifacts and that when brought together will actually depict the lives of the poor and silent masses there in Egypt. And this is what inspired her to collect her sister's belongings. Another one of the items that Gamila's things included, if you recall, I said she picked up unopened mail. There was a severance letter found among... Yeah, yeah, right, for the check. A severance. (laughs) A severance letter. Mm-hmm. Found in that mail. And Rose didn't know that her sister had left her job. Again, one of those little things about her sister she did not know. Um, of course, that twinges her. Like, why didn't I know this? So she calls her parents on her lunch break and she makes up the story telling them that one of the colleagues want to send out an email 
to the department about her sister. And so she asked for Gamila's title and then asked if Gamila was still working for them. And their parents like, yeah, she was still working. She was doing so good. They was have her traveling. She'd be gone weeks at a time and then come back at a new construction site and receive. She was doing a thing. She was she was great at her job. They loved her. It was great. She and was doing her, really well. <laughs> her parents do a good job of not outwardly favoring either child, but they're the proudest in a lot of ways of their younger child inexplicably because both their daughters are very hard workers. And it's a lot of stuff about their younger daughter. They don't even get Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for some reason, they talk about her accomplishments, at least in Rose's eyes. They talk about Gamila's accomplishments more and they see she seems to be following the track that they placed in front of her, whereas mm-hmm. Rose did her own thing in a lot of ways. So they love her. Yeah. They're proud of her. But she didn't follow yeah. the path they made for her. Rose. Yeah. And so in their minds, she got this um, great gig that she was doing really well at in the switch where she's traveling. It dates back actually to the date of the severance letter. So learning these things, Rose has so many unanswered questions. Why did her sister quit her job? Why didn't she tell anyone? And what was she hiding? So Mark, Rose's husband, meets her after work and he plans to take her to dinner, but he's eating a hot dog by um, by the time she gets to him. And he excitedly wants Rose to meet the man at the hot dog stand who is, guess what? A he's fellow Egyptian, Egyptian, just like you. Let's go talk to him. Let's go talk to him. Rose, though, doesn't engage and expects, um, well, Rose doesn't engage as Mark expects her to. And the couple argue and it becomes quite clear that Rose blames Mark for the death of her sister yeah you're like how did we get here from the hot dog man to the death of her sister but Rose is like because of class hierarchies that you don't even understand it would actually embarrass this man more for me to be overly talkative to him let him do his job get your hot dog and go live your life and Mark's like you're (laughs) projecting Mark is an American journalist from West Virginia okay Mm -hmm. and Mark is like you don't know what you're talking about She's like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm Egyptian. And it's your fault my sister's dead. You know, (laughs) that's the implication we get to eventually. And it's just hurtful. Both parties are just hurt. Yeah. So it's official. Rose is trying her darndest not to blame Mark, but she can't help it. It's what she does in her heart. She blames him. Yeah, he represents this like um, high and mighty uh, American judgment of the rest Mm. of the world. And she's like, you don't know everything. You think, you know, you you can see into the hearts of people and you understand everything and you know what it means to have Mm. good intention. But really, you're ignorant in a lot of ways and truly ignorant because you don't know (laughs) and you don't know you don't know. And my sister's dead because you don't know. (laughs) And it's your fault. It's your fault. Mm hmm. Yeah. So when they first heard that Camila went missing, they were in anguish together. But when they learned how she died, Rose turned on Mark and she would not allow him into her grief because he was the problem. She says you she would not have died if not for you and your interviews, your articles, your obsession with meddling. Why did you have to bring her along? Why did you have to drag my sister into your work? 
So Rose explains that because she deals with history, she is consumed with how her life might have affected her sisters, how her husband may have affected her sister's life. And she keeps going back and back to how things have influenced her sister's life. And Mark asks if she feels guilty for having married him. And she says she doesn't. However, she can't quite articulate that she feels the guiltiest because she doesn't regret it. Part two, when they met. Rose, go ahead. I was saying that's deep. She she doesn't feel guilty for meeting the man that possibly led to her sister's death because she loves that man. And she doesn't feel guilty for not feeling guilty. guilty, And that makes her feel guilty. (laughs) Yeah, it's a cycle. So Rose met Mark when he was living in Egypt, writing an article on sexism in Egypt. And he came to interview her while she was assisting on an excavation team at the Giza Plateau outside of Cairo. Rose assumed that he wanted to talk to one of the site directors, but had to settle for her. But when he ran down her resume and background, he told her, I don't do interviews with people without knowing the most basic biographical information about them. She knew then that he wanted to interview her. He told her he wanted to interview her specifically because she want, because he wanted to get an Egyptian woman's viewpoint about working in a profession generally dominated by men. She told him how young she was when she fell in love with the pharaohs during the visit to the Egyptian museums at a tender age. Um, She told him she was raised to think only of what she should do, not what she shouldn't do. Um, What she, excuse me, she told him that she was raised to think what she should and shouldn't do, not what she could and could not do. Rose found herself um, kind of protecting Egypt's dirty laundry, if you will. That's what it says in the book. Yeah, protecting Egypt's dirty laundry. She did not want an American journalist um, to have information that would imply Egypt was sexist. She didn't want that. It's talking about family business Mm -hmm. with outsiders. You don't do that. So you have this uh, white American journalist asking you about sexism in your country. And she's like, first of all, your country ain't the least sexist place in the world. Second of all, you on the outside. Why are you even asking these questions? And this was a cool part because she talks about what she was raised to think what she should do and not what she she should Mm -hmm. do and not what she must do. Um, I remember staying with friends in Italy and um, they're very they speak English really very well, but they couldn't wrap their mind around uh, the difference between should oh, and must. And I, I couldn't explain it either. Like what's the difference between you should do this. You must do this. What's the difference? Uh, she put it, she explained it really well in just a couple sentences. Must removes your choice. It's something you don't have mm-hmm. the choice, whether you can do it or not. Um, it's not just about your intention, your heart. It's about your um, need and, and lack of, um, free will to do something. You have to do it. No, tro- no yeah. choice. So that's the difference between should and must. I put a pin in that. That was yeah. really great. So the interview ended with Rose asking Mark on a date to prove to him that Egyptian women were not as as oppressed. It was not a date and helpless no, as they thought they were. <laughs> but it, it was a date. Listen, he was cute or whatever, but she was going to sh- be the ambassador for her country. Okay, she wanted to show. She didn't even notice That's how right. cute he was all glistening <laughs> and carrying on with them blue eyes and the, the dirty blonde hair. Whatever. But it was a date. Okay. 
I gotta, I have to do this for my country. Yeah, so that's what these the lies she telling herself. This, I'm gonna take a bullet for the team. Come on, I'll take you to dinner. This is what she <laughs> must do for the country. <laughs> yeah, she, she. It's not that she should take Mark to dinner. She must. <laughs> she must. So, um, when Mark proposed to Rose for at least a tenth time, she reminded him that Muslim women were not allowed to marry outside their faith. Mark would have to present a certificate of conversion to Islam issued by an accredited institution. Otherwise, they would be considered living in sin, which is an offense that still warranted an honor killing in some parts of the country. Her mother's family would ostracize her and her mom would likely disown her. Mark said that he would convert they would marry and move to New York so Rose could get her PhD. When Rose told her family she and Mark would marry, she told them he converted. Her mother was relieved. Her father wiped a tear and her sister asked, does he really believe in Islam or is he just doing that to marry you? You cannot. Everyone's like, oh, you're getting married. They're hugging, kissing Mark. They're like, oh, we'll have a real wahite in our family. <laughs> And the sister is like, oh, you converted mm. Mm. to what? To mm. marry my sister? Because you can't mm-hmm. fool God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't fool God. Um, and so she's like, Rose is like, yeah, but if he was Egyptian, would you test his faith like that? You can't possibly believe that all Muslim born men have true faith. And her sister's like, oh, I'm sorry. Is he Egyptian? No, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> So Rose Keep had your felt hypotheticals. like <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Rose had felt like Camila was judging her over the past year. She was the only one who called Rose by her given name, Feroz, asking Rose if she was sure about this relationship with this Mark guy. Is this something you really want to do? Yeah. And Camila is uh, like traditional Muslim. She wears a headscarf and it makes all her secular family uncomfortable. <laughs> but they roll yeah. with it. They like, oh, this just her. This is how she rebelling by being really yeah. religious. So part three, Camila. So two years prior to Mark and Rose engagement, Camila, as Kari said, decided to devote herself to God and she wore her hijab everywhere all the time. So she was no longer the fun Gigi who loved detective stories, pop music and spent hours um, sharing secrets with her sister. That was a different person. Now she's Gamila, the covered one, the pious one, the one who is judging everyone. And that's how her family saw her. The day after Rose's, Rose's engagement announcement, Gamila went to her friend Marwa's apartment. And Marwa told Gamila to be happy for her sister, encouraged her to speak to her sister if she was truly worried about her. And Marwa told Gamila that, you know, the way you lashed out, if you did that to me, I would be mad too. This The behavior is not okay. She had a good, reasonable friend mm-hmm. that <laughs> told her to look, try to look at things differently. And so she told her that it was Mark's conversion is between him and God. And it's not okay for her to judge that. And also it was perfectly okay for Gamila to be religious. And she was taking her her family's um, teasing too serious. She was being too sensitive. So as Gamila walks back home from her friend's house, she tells her that she tells herself that she needs to accept the decision of her sister and be happy for her sister. 
And it seems that Camila was really battling uh, this constant struggle to improve herself. And it just felt that true goodness was elusive as she was dealing with her own devotion to God. At the engagement dinner, Camila found that Mark was... um, He seemed to genuinely care for Rose, but she was annoyed by her parents' eagerness to please him. Camila kept reminding herself that she needed to stop being childish and self-centered, but her dreams of her life of living down the street from her sister, they were shattered. They were vanishing, and she couldn't see past her own pain um, to see her sister's happiness. So she would eventually storm out of the room and disappointment. I appreciated of the conversation. this part because she also is looking at her parents like, why are you falling over yourselves for this American? He's fine. OK, he's well mannered. He's whatever. We don't know that much about him. Everyone calm down. Um, and it reminded mm-hmm. me of like, yeah, a lot yeah. of families when someone who's from outside of your culture um, is coming into your family and they act like, wow, we're so honored you chose us. Us brown people, you're going to be a part of our family and marry our offspring. How honored we are. And Camila's like, this is gross. Uh, but, you know, yeah, we're she all was really affected by that. colonialization. And, you know, we just got to work through it. I'm going to go to my room because I hate you all right now, but I'm going to try not to. OK. <laughs> and she's just telling herself, like, stop, stop, stop. I got that. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. It was very clear. Part four, Mark and Rose in New York. When Mark and Rose moved to New York so Rose could start a PhD program at Columbia, she assumed Mark was happy. But three years into their marriage, while hosting a dinner party with friends, she found out he wasn't. He was working for the New York Times. He wasn't getting the assignments he wanted. His boss was rejecting every second piece he pitched, and he longed to be in Egypt. Also, five months after they left for America, a revolution took place in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And it's a, that's a journalistic opportunity. And he was missing out when she asked why he didn't go back. When Mark was asked by his friend why he didn't go back, he didn't answer. Rose volunteered. She said, we had to stay because I had just started my Ph.D. program. And the friend said, Rose could have been here by herself <laughs> for a couple of months. Come on now. Whatever. And Rose agreed. But she was still concerned or scared that her husband would get hurt there. Um, So they have a little argument in front of their friends. And then after dinner, they made up and Rose suggested that he go to Egypt for a couple of weeks to complete maybe a freelance piece. And then he could stay with her family. Part five, Gamila. Six months later, Mark was heading to Egypt. One evening while Rose spoke to her parents, her mom mentioned how weird her sister had been acting lately. And she was always texting someone. She'd go out for hours at a time and come home in the middle of the night. That's a sign she got a boyfriend, right, (laughs) y'all? Exactly. That's what I assume. Oh, I just love this section because you hear um, about certain parts of the world and you're like, Wow, everyone has to stay indoors at night because it's just so violent in the streets and mm. blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, Gamila, the pious one, is walking through the streets at night and just loving her country. She's yep. like looking at the people in the street, having a good time, families, kids. And she's like, how could anyone leave this place? Yeah. Like her yeah. sister doing. 
Yeah. So her Rose told her mother that Camilla was 25 years old, right? She's a woman. She, she gets to be out there in the streets. Mm-hmm. Let her live her life. And her mother's like, there's... It's been topsy-turvy since the revolution hit. There are no rules anymore. I need to reel my kid in, Mm -hmm. her adult child. (laughs) And Rose said that she was probably spending time at Madawa's house, and that should be okay. So Rose's mom, so Rose says, let me talk to her. I want to chat with her. And she's like, okay, if you find out anything, let me know, okay? (laughs) But when Camila came to the phone, she said her parents were driving her bonkers because all they spoke about was politics and Camila and her parents were supporting opposite sides of the revolution. Rose told Camila that their mom hopes that she would get married soon and she suspected that she was sneaking out for a little boyfriend (laughs) and Rose laughs and Camila goes silent. (laughs) Like, wait, do you have a boyfriend? What's going on? Camila gets mad and is like, I don't think it's any of their business, one. And then why does she ask you to tell ask me instead of asking me so herself? obviously I'm there's some it. truth to it because why are you getting mad over this? Mm-hmm. Rose said she asked because she wanted to know and the ter- discussion just turns hot. They go off, but then they um, try to come back. Rose says, why can't we talk about normal things? Why do we always have to talk about religion and politics every day? And Camila reminds her that that's all that's in the news over here. You don't live here. We don't have the luxury of a normal life. The sisters make up, um, as I mentioned, but they can't really get into that sisterly conversation. Part six, Mark and Camila in Egypt. So after Mark and Rose married, Camila still never took her head cover off in Mark's presence. He hadn't fallen under that category of men she could let see her hair. I think that kind of hurts him. And that was limited to close family. Yeah, because he wants. Yeah, it does. Because every time. He wants to be family, family. Like he wants her because he's being ostracized Mm -hmm. by his family. I'm sure you'll get into that. And so he wants at least. Okay, so Mm -mm. his family has kind of not disowned him at all, but they're heartbroken that he's converted to um, Islam. And his mother even said, this just means I couldn't complain complete the one job that was more important than anything when it came to my child. Um, So they're heartbroken. And so as they distance themselves from him, Mark wants to be closer to Rose's family. And yeah, the parents love him, but it's the sister who's going to show you like the truth. Like, you know, if we really rock with you like that and her not taking her head covering off around him is a sign that she doesn't see him as truly family. He's still an outsider. So he really wants to be in good with them um, and feel like family. Yeah. Yeah. But when he actually comes back to Egypt, Camila seems surprisingly relaxed in his presence. And then one evening, Mark returns home to his in-laws late and he forgot his keys. So he texts Camila and she's up texting somebody and she lets him in, but Mm -hmm. she don't have a head covering on. Hmm. Things are changing. Well, that evening, Mark had been out trying to get information for this article he wanted to write, but he was being misdirected. He wasn't getting what he wanted. He was starting to feel like, like they were using him as a pawn a to promote their own so political Camila, ideologies. And he's like, I want to get both sides. I'm a journalist. I'm not trying to yeah. push any type of thinking. I want to show what's going on here in a real way. 
Yeah. And so Gamila asked Mark, what are you hoping to find? And this was the first time Gamila and Mark would actually have a one-on-one conversation. Mark told Gamila that he was hoping to talk to people who had participated in the revolution and write portraits of their lives and nothing that directly addressed politics, but something that could shed some light on the impact the Egyptian politics were having on society. And Gamila says, I think I can help you. Gamila introduces Mark to a man named Saber. He's 21 and he's participated in the revolution and in several of the subsequent demonstrations. Gamila didn't know him personally, but she knew of him through a friend, Fuad. Fuad would take Mark and Gamila to Sabir. Sabir. On the drive to meet Sabir, Fuad engaged Mark. He told him that he... He, if he had stayed longer, he would take him out to his citrus farm in Rashid and she could, he could experience the best dates that Egypt has to offer. And Gamila would kind of tease Fuad and Mark asks, how y'all know each <laughs> y'all other? Y'all seem real cozy is all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, real cozy and comfortable. Gamila tells him he is her friend, Madawa's cousin. Okay. Part seven, Sabir. Fuad tells Mark, that Sabir was one of the electricians working on his apartment a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. Sabir's brother was a fundamentalist who was killed during one of the protests the previous year. Sabir witnessed it all, but wants nothing to do with politics, which Fuad says is common amongst the people there. When they arrived at Sabir's location, an old man and a woman are kind of watching them. So Mark is like, let me just ask these people if they know the guy we're looking for. And um, Gamila tells him, you can't really ask that because they'll give him a hard time when we leave and they'll accuse him of being a spy. And Mark is like, well, why wouldn't you have told me that? And then why are you guys fearing journalists? That's dumb. And Gamila tells um, him that Sabir could get in really big trouble. And it's not funny for you to make light of our situation. So obviously Mark has never been hood or hood adjacent because anybody can understand <laughs> that. If it's trouble going on in your neighborhood and you call the police, guess where they coming? Excuse mm-hmm. me, ma'am. Did you call us? Just point to whoever causing the trouble in your neighborhood. Now are you going to point to the person causing the trouble? Because the police ain't going to be there forever. They going to go back yep. to their uh, stations or whatever and you just going to be in the hood pointing fingers by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Does that sound like a good idea? Now, Mark should have understood that. Don't be showing up to this man uh, neighborhood asking for him and you a whole white American journalist. (laughs) A whole Mm -mm. white American journalist. (laughs) And so so it's really just that simple. Be discreet. And she was like, I thought you would have known that. And he was like, you a whole journalist. I mean, <laughs> you don't know this. I mean, I, I do usually be discreet, but I just thought, no, don't do that. <laughs> don't think. So, <laughs> so Gamila thought it would have been a good idea for them to talk to Sabir away from his home. But Fuad suggested that they talk to him there because Mark would like the scenery. And that's true, but it just wasn't a good move to do. Mark just didn't seem like didn't feel like there should be a problem with a profile that he would be doing because it didn't it wasn't talking about politics. It shouldn't have any negative repercussions on him. So when Fuad returns, 
he says that Sabir is ready and Gamila and Mark follow. But there's that old man that's over there. He's still watching. He's still watching. So Sabir told Fuad that he would rather have the interview elsewhere. So this is they have a conversation about what he originally wanted. And Sabir is now saying, can we do mm-hmm. this elsewhere? Um, and Mark tells him, listen, we can conduct it wherever you want it to be. Take me there. Later, when Mark speaks to Rose, she wanted to know if he had re- um, when Mark speaks to Rose and tells her that he met with somebody, he's got a, somebody for his um, profile. She's like, did you really have to take my sister there, though? But Mark told Rose that it was Gamila and her friend that dragged him there. He would have been more comfortable taking one of the interpreters and handling it his way. Mark said that there was something sinister about Gamila's friend. And Rose like, who is his friend you talking about? And she's, he says that it's her cousin that was at our wedding. She's <laughs> like, that could have been anybody. Part eight, Gamila and Fouad. Now... This is a story here. Camila let herself into Fuad's <laughs> apartment and she tells herself that she's not breaking in. Okay. She's in the kitchen. She can see a teapot and a delicate china teacup with yellow butterflies on the, on the rim and the dish rack. Okay. And she makes herself a cup of tea and she sits in the living room and she's just sitting there for about an hour. And this is an apartment above her friend Madawa's house apartment. This, her friend Madawa, well, her mom, her friend Madawa's mom is concerned. Her friend Madawa's mom is Fuad's <laughs> sister. a lot going on, <laughs> but not really, but okay, yeah. Okay, something like that. Yeah, it's a lot going on. So he is like 50-something so years yeah, old. So yeah, the, 50. the baby sister He's has a friend. That friend has an uncle. And that uncle has caught the baby sister's eye. To be honest, little Gigi has been hanging around mm-hmm. trying to see Zeddy, who's the uncle. Okay. <laughs> Gigi is 25. <laughs> the uncle's in his early 50s. The uncle's sister, who is Gigi's friend's mm-hmm. mom, is like, I see what's going on here. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody saw that there was a tr- an attraction because Gigi them. would be like, hey, you want to hang out? Is your uncle there? Wait, what? <laughs> Do you want to hang out or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Camila just kept waiting for the ball to drop. She knew at one point um, that I, yeah, she's going to go and tell on her to her mom. And she's like, she ain't want that. Mm-hmm. So Camila had been in love with him for like three <laughs> years, so. <laughs> anyway, so that's their little story. But after this interview happens with Mark, Fuad began to wonder if maybe Sabir would get in trouble. Sabir would get in trouble for that interview. And so he was filled with what ifs. Um, Gamila was filled with what ifs. She had the same fears. But then 10 days after Fuad said, um, 10 days after the interview, Fuad sent Gamila Mark's completed article. The article, part nine, the article and its effects. So we're not going to read the article, but we'll hit you with some highlights, okay? The article was published in the New York Times, February 11, 2014. 
the article profile is about Sabir. And he says that he wants to raise pigeons where there's good money. Five years earlier, Sabir's father was jailed after getting in a fight with a neighbor and striking him dead. He and a neighbor fought over a piece of land that Sabir's father had constructed on a dwell, uh, constructed a dwelling on. The same dwelling Sabir still occupies with his mother and four siblings. Sabir's father was a diabetic and he died while serving his prison sentence. When the revolution hit, Sabir saw hope and possibility for change. But the only change that came was the death of his brother. And no one would accept or prove responsibility for his brother's death. The police said that protest protesters were armed so they could have been responsible. But his brother was shot in the head. And that, he felt, was only an act of a sniper. After his brother's death, Sabir stopped participating in protests. Now Sabir works as an electrical apprentice. He plans to have his own electrician shop, but he knows that requires a huge investment. Um, one he's not likely to raise. So he focuses on his pigeon trade, something that he can do cheaply, but it can be quite lucrative. He aspires to have a pigeon house as big as one of his friends. Um, his focus is now on feeding his younger siblings, and that is becoming harder and harder. His mother earns money by sewing for the neighborhood women, but the bulk of the responsibility falls on Sabir, who is 21 years old. The Brotherhood, which is um, the political organization that came in and helped start the revolution, filled his mother's pantry and provided his father with the diabetes medication. And with the brotherhood gone, no longer in power, that void, there's a void that's not being filled. So that's the article. Sabir thought this article would garner him some attention, maybe even give him the money he needed to raise his pigeon house. But the news anchors only focused on his brother's death. They're like, why did they interview him? All he's doing is talking bad about the government. And that's not right. He received mixed responses um, about the news article from neighbors and friends. Some were happy. Some were wondering why he would want to bring that attention to himself. Mm -hmm. And still others were disappointed. For instance, his mom. Why did you do that? You're shining um, an unfavorable favorable light on our family. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, that's what his mom was like. So began to regret his participation and he wondered why his mom would begrudge him the participation in this article. He saw that interview as one chance for someone he could he could talk to and then also someone that would listen to him. And everything just seemed so unfair. And on top of it all, the man his father killed was watching him. So not the man his father killed, the father of the man his father killed was watching him. And his name was As M. Ismail. So Sabir was in the pigeon house one day when the police arrived, demanding that he come down. He knew that As Ismail had led the police to him. Sabir didn't want to come down. He wanted to run. 
He didn't know why he was being asked to come down and he didn't do anything wrong. So why should he come down? Mm -hmm. But he also didn't want to go to jail. His father had died in jail and he had heard enough stories about jail and he knew he didn't want to go. When one of the orderlies, and I guess the orderlies are supporting the police officer, okay? So the police officer is there, and then there's a couple orderlies that are supposed to get him and put him in the car. He mimics So one of the orderlies grabs one of his pigeons and then tries to kind of exaggerate the motion of twisting his neck. Mm -hmm. And Sabir lunges at him trying to set the pigeon free. Instead of setting the pigeon free... He falls into the orderly. The orderly falls into the cages and falls to the ground. And then there's testimony about it. And all the testimony was different. One orderly testified that Sabir drove, dove at the orderly, sending him flying off the pigeon house. Another said the man tripped and fell on his own. Sabir's mother said the orderlies beat up her son as they tried to arrest him. Am Ishmael, the man whose son was killed by Sabir's father, testified he clearly saw Sabir hold the men up, push them off the ledge, and laugh as, out loud as he watched them fall. He yeah, knew that mm-hmm. as Ismail, Am Ismail had called the police on Sabir, he knew that he'd done that to him, claiming yeah, that he had been in constant contact with foreigners and that he had been visited by multiple journalists and he openly criticized the government and tried to destabilize the nation by spreading lies about how his brother died. And M. Ismail produced the newspaper article as proof. The police told Sabir that they just wanted to question him. And Sabir said that he didn't do anything. And the police told him that he almost killed an orderly while the orderly was performing his duties. And the orderly ended up breaking with a broken hip. And he said when Sabir told the officer he almost killed his pigeons, the officer chuckled and said, that's your defense. (laughs) (laughs) Jail, (laughs) directly to jail. (laughs) Exactly. So let's jump back a little bit to Rose. We're on part 10, you guys. Almost done here. Rose was convinced by her colleague to instead of focusing on these belongings that you pulled from your sister's house, why don't you talk to people who knew your sister to try to find out what happened to her? So she reaches out to her former employer, to Gamila's former employer, and learns that Gamila quit her job because her soon-to-be husband didn't want her what? to work. Yeah. Gamila's former workplace said that he was a nice guy, but he was a bit too old. And they were disappointed that there wasn't a big wedding that they would all be invited to. Of course, this shocked mm-hmm. Rose. She had no idea her sister would be married. So she begins frantically going through her sister's belongings and locates Gamila's wedding certificate. Eventually, Rose would call her parents and ask if she had a suitor. And they, the parents say, yeah, there was this older man coming around, but um, we weren't going to let her marry him. And, you know, she got over it. She understood. He was low class. He was a farmer. He had a record. It was all trash. Yeah, he Mm -hmm. is trash. That's what they said. (laughs) Part 10, August 
2016. Sabir spent 18 months in prison. While he was in prison, he met a man named Bader who would convince him that his life trials were preparing him for eternity. Bader told him that there are rare cases where people get special treatment and a life designed to prepare them for an eternal glory, an eternity of glory. He gave Sabir an example of that. Consider Job. Remember, Job had all that stuff taken away from him. He was preparing for a life of glory. Mm -hmm. And remember Jonah? He went in a big fish. Also a life of glory. Trials are there to remind us that life is fleeting and to show us the way to heaven, the eternity in heaven. And Bader told Sabir to take his own life for all the injustices that he he experienced. And he could be the judge, God's ambassador to the world. Bader told Sabir that he could avenge his father and his brother's death as well as his wrongful imprisonment and be God's instrument bringing justice to the police who brought all of this upon him in the first place. Yeah, so the boy is being radicalized in prison. He didn't have a strong ideology. Um, he didn't have a strong uh, foundation of belief or purpose in life. Um, in prison, he feels very lost. And here comes this man who's claiming to be a holy man. Everyone in prison, by the way, is like, don't listen to him. He a scammer. But yeah. the boy is like, yeah, um, no, you're just um, one of uh, like the devil's uh, tools to distract me from my purpose. He's believing everything that the old man says. And so he's, he's eating it yeah. up, eating it yeah, up. Yeah, it's giving him mm-hmm. a, fo- a tools and a foundation that he feels like he never had in life, a purpose. Uh, so he's just clinging yeah. to this man's every word and believing it while in prison. Yeah. And so Bader tells him that he could decide who lives and dies. So when Saber leaves prison, he calls Fouad. Now, if you remember, Fouad is Camila's husband. <laughs> and it was him who set him up to meet um, Mark, the American journalist. And he's like, we got to meet, man. Let's get together. He was like, well, what you going to meet for? And he wouldn't tell him. He's like, okay, well, I ain't going to meet with you if you ain't talking about it. I'm busy. But he kept texting him. He was blowing him up, you know, texting well, he was texting him a whole lot, okay? And um, eventually, I was like, I'm going to block him. But I don't really want to block him just in case he, like, really needs something. But I think I should block him. He is really working a nerve here. So, um, Camila knows this. She's, she's hearing her husband complain about Sabir um, constantly reaching out to him and she's like well why don't you just go meet him it would be easy mm-hmm. we can go together we can help him I want to help people we can help people this is my mission I am going to help you be a better Muslim and I going to be a better Muslim and we're going to help this guy be a better Muslim so come on let's do it he was like nope I don't even trust that man he might not even be safe I don't want you around him and I don't want to be around him So I believe her husband blocks him. But Camila goes Mm -hmm. into her husband's phone, responds to him. And from the phone, 
and then gives Sabir a new contact number so he can contact her directly as she plays her husband. She then deletes the text chain from Fuad's phone. Gamila saw Sabir as someone in need and she was determined to help him. So when she met with Samir, he was surprised to see Gamila. And Gamila told Sabir that she was Fuad's wife and Fuad trusted her to help him. And that is why she's here. Sabir is like, here, give this to the American journalist. Do you know him? Give this envelope to him. And Gamila's like, I'm not the post office. So Gamila really wants to help with some Everything she does is with the intent to help someone else. So she sees her husband as giving up on this boy. And she's like, but this boy has never really had anyone. All he needs is direction and someone to believe in him. I'll be that someone. So so she lies and sneak her way into a meeting with the boy. And the boy's like, yeah, that journalist you was with, hand of this. And she's like, I am not the post office. He said, you probably don't even know who the journalist is. And um, against her better judgment, she's like, I do know who he is, too, because he's my brother-in-law. So, bam. And then that causes something in Mm -hmm. the boy's eyes to change. Like he's your the journalist is your brother-in-law and you are. Uh, what's his name's wife? Like that's two connections. And I'm all I'm looking for signs all day. So mm -hmm. all day. All day. So he's at the moment, he's like, well, you know, I'm going to think about if you could help me. But when she reveals that she's related to them, he was mm-hmm. like, well, I got a plan. So he contacts her. And again, he's like, did you get an envelope to to, to the she's man? Like, I sure like, did. Like, yeah, she, did. I did that. she read through and it was like mm-hmm. so uh, conservative. She had yeah, fully she couldn't read, read through it. all that mess. She read First a couple of lines. Arabic. She's like, why am I going to give my American brother-in-law a whole manifesto in Arabic? No. Also, I believe these are mm-hmm. just the rantings yeah. of a young man who needs help from me. I have good intentions and a pure heart. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. So they go to the same place. They meet up. At a coffee up. shop. Um at a coffee shop and she actually has the envelope with her secretly because she didn't tell her him she gave it to Mark. Yeah. Yeah. But when they meet up, he just start like, come on, let's go. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, she just walking like, behind him going? trying to keep up just with keep him. Up. And he walking off okay, fast. Can you slow down? <laughs> mm-hmm. like, getting hot. Just like, this is too much. And they just walking. And then finally they arrive at a police station and she's like, well, what are we doing here? And then she thinks about all these boys who were sent to prison for a little, you know, rebellious stickers and little innocent, almost, I shouldn't say innocent, but smaller things, smaller, smaller, things. smaller um, signs of rebellion against the established system than what's in her backpack. So secretly, she has a whole manifesto and she's like let me read this before the police because they're going to confiscate it. I at least want them to know what. I at least want to know what they're going to think of me. So she starts going through the manifesto and she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm, 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 mm. Mm. Wait a second. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what she's like. Mm-hmm. And then she gets. And so they're going into the police station and she still doesn't know, but she's quickly reading through this um, manifesto. 
Right. Basically, that's, what it that's is. not what that they call it, it but is. that is what we find out it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we find out it is. Tabira is ahead of her. And so she's calling him like when she realized what it is that could be happening. So she gets to a part. She gets to a part and it's talking about it. This must be done. It must be done. And I am the tool to do it. And she was like, I missed something. So she goes back pages and whatever this it is, like five, 10 pages are devoted to it. So she's like, is this him feeling guilty for his brother's death? What is it? And then she realizes it is some act of revenge against the judicial system that he feels has wronged him and is spreading injustice in and she realizes what's in the backpack and what his intention is. And when he looked at her, he saw her as like a little cherry on top of his revenge Sunday. Yeah. Um, and she realizes she's been played. Yep. 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 She's yep. been played. So she starts calling out to him and he turns around. And for a second, she sees in his eyes the look of a little boy unsure of if he should do what he's about to do. And she hopes that look lasts forever, but it doesn't. In a second, it's gone. The road leading to the police headquarters was blockaded on both ends, with no traffic allowed except for a trickle of pedestrians who had to go through the metal detectors installed in the middle of the road. Saber stepped up to the line leading to the gate, and Gamila stood behind him. Over a dozen people separated them from the metal detectors. Gamila stepped aside, trying to see ahead. But all she could discern were two female officers chatting off to the side, their Navy head covers matching their uniforms, and the officer sitting in the shade of an umbrella next to the gate. Gamila could not fathom why Saber had brought her here of all places. Surely he was not seeking employment at the police headquarters. Was he in trouble with the police again? Did he need her to testify on his behalf, to tell them that she was the one who brought Mark to him, that he had not sought out the American journalist? What are we doing here? She whispered to his back. He did not answer. The afternoon had turned suffocatingly hot and she was sweating profusely under her head cover, her hair sticky and itchy. To her utter embarrassment, she was also getting nervous about going through the security checkpoint with the boy's envelope in her backpack. She remembered the stories flooding her social media feed in the previous three years since the Muslim Brotherhood president got thrown out and the state tightened its grip on all forms of dissent. The 15-year-old kid arrested for wearing a t-shirt with no to torture printed on it. Thrown in jail for years under terrorism charges. The young man who got detained for a sticker on his laptop denouncing the military rule. She had only read through the first few pages, had not even glanced through the rest. What if the rest contained similar material? What if the officers at the security checkpoint read through the boy's scribbles? Still, a good five or six people away from the metal gate, Gamila tore the envelope open, pulling out the dozen sheets inside. Ahead of her, Sabir looked straight in front of him, never turning around. Gamila folded the envelope, stuffed it in her purse, then looked at the sheets. Pages and pages covered with notes lay in her hands, fanned out the white of the sheets blinding in the bright daylight. Gamila squinted, held the sheets up to her face. The boy's handwriting was a tightly wound scrawl, the words written in black ink often too close to each other to decipher. She removed the first three pages, the ones she had already read, and flipped through the rest. No way she could read all of this before arriving at the gate. She stepped aside, 
let one woman pass in front of her, still keeping an eye on Saber, afraid he would make it through and she would lose him. She got back in line and frantically scanned the pages. At first, all she found were stock prayers, declarations that God will always be on the side of those defending his law, that this life was for the vain, that eternity was the true life. She skimmed through the next paragraph, then the next. Then she got to the paragraph about the police. Reading through the first two sentences, Gamila immediately got out of the line and stepped to the side. The boy had gone on a two, no, three-page rant against the police, accusing them of murdering his brother and his father, of killing his pigeons, his pigeons, of holding him unjustly. He went on to blame them for every protester who died during the revolution, for helping the army throw out the legitimately elected Muslim Brotherhood president. Gamila took another step away from the line, glanced at the two female officers, making sure they couldn't read the pages over her shoulder, and then at Saber, who was just two people away from the metal gates. This stuff was enough to get her arrested, to get him arrested again. She wondered what he had in his backpack, hoped he didn't carry more copies of this to distribute, imagined him walking around the police building handing out flyers. She wondered if he realized he would be searched. Ahead of her, one of the two policewomen was looking through a lady's purse. Chances are they wouldn't really look through all the papers in his backpack, but what if they did? She took another frantic glance through the pages, skipped a few paragraphs ahead. What on earth did Saber think Mark would do with this? A watered down, that very eloquent version of those angry posts the supporters of the ousted Muslim Brotherhood president have flooded Facebook with for the previous three years. She kept skimming through the pages. What finally caught her eyes was a pronoun. It. Because God had sent me signals that I was called upon to do it. Do what? She skimmed back up, looked for an explanation she may have missed, a reference or an elaboration. This deed that I have committed is a testimony to my faith in God, my responsibility to do his bidding, my determination to set things right. Was he going to the police to confess a crime he had committed? If so, why did he need to drag her with him? Frantically, she scanned the paragraphs, reading them backward one by one, skipping some, then going back to them, glancing at Saber to see if he had made it to the front of the line yet. Nothing. She went back to the spot where she had originally left off reading and continued from there. Muddling through Saber's inconsistent, poor prose, she struggled to find a clue she had previously missed, anything that would explain what that deed was that he referred to, what it was that he felt needed 12 pages of justification. Did he refer to pushing the orderly off the roof? Was this an admission of guilt? Was he perhaps feeling responsible for his brother's death? Did he feel a need to apologize for his interview with Mark? But why would he? After all, he had explicitly asked her to get the pages to Mark, doubtless seeking more exposure. What was it then? Because God rewards those who embrace jihad in his name. Gamila looked up, her heart racing. After years of studying Islam, she knew what jihad meant, striving to be pious, to spread goodness on earth, to act every day in the knowledge that God was watching all one's deeds, to live in the hope of attaining grace. She knew perfectly well that this was not what Saber meant when he used the word jihad. For a moment, she felt the clarity of vision that she had always longed for but never grasped, the pieces falling into place. Saber's senseless manifesto, his anger with the police, with Mark, and with Fuad, her presence here, the cherry on top of his revenge cake. In her bursts of revelation, she felt utterly, completely stupid. She yelled. He did not respond. Camila's heart raced. 
She considered running to him and pulling him away. He was right there. She could reach him in a few steps, but she could not run toward a security checkpoint. All three officers were armed. She took one slow, hesitant step toward him. One of the policewomen turned and gave her an inquisitive look. Get back in line, the policewoman ordered. Gamila retreated. Saber, she called one more time. But he had already made it to the front of the line. She watched him try to walk around the metal detector between it and the barricade set up close by. The police officer shouted at him to get back. He got back, paused in front of the metal detector, then stepped through it and it beeped, a shrill, loud noise. Gamila took one step backward and mirroring her, Saber took a step back too. Then he turned his head to look her way. For a split second, she thought she saw a youthful look flash in his eyes, a look of fear, of hesitation, of indecisiveness, just like that look she always saw in the eyes of the young peasants' kids at the farm when they had to pick between two fruits she offered them, wanting both, wanting everything, but believing there could only be one choice. She clung to that look, her eyes wide, hoping it would last, but a second later, it vanished. So... That is the death of her sister. Yeah. The death of her sister. It really had nothing to do with Mark because if he had never connected with Mark, she still was going to marry her friend's uncle. Um, No doubt. I mean, possibly. I will say it did have something to do with Mark. Okay, let's save that for the verdict. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, that's what she's digging into. She... She then, um, okay, she's learned about her sister being married. um, And now she then goes to Egypt. Rose now goes to Egypt and she meets um, Gamila's husband. Yeah, so Mark has connections and he arranges for, um, he arranges first of all to find out who Gamila's husband really was where he lives and then yeah his wife goes there rose goes there and it's yeah. a the very end of the book it's a very peaceful way to end it because um rose isn't going there with anger in her heart she right. listens openly um the man is devastated that his young wife is killed by the hands of um this boy a suicide bomber in this way um but he was in the dark just as much as everyone else because camila had lied um and said that her husband sent her, of course, he didn't want to have anything to do with that boy. So uh, all that stuff that um, Rose stole from her sisters from their shared room in the beginning of the book, she gives to the husband, save for a scarf that she keeps for herself. And there's tears in the man's eyes. He really loved her sister. And he feels like everything she did um, was done with a, a pure heart, pure heart, mm-hmm. a kind intention. Um, and then Rose like walks through his farm and has one of those delicious dates that you can only get in this part of the world. Um, yeah. And then she returns home to Mark, uh, no longer resenting him. The end. Let's take a quick break. <laughs> All right, let's do it. We're back. Kari, what's your final verdict and would you recommend this book? 
Loved it. Would recommend it. Wow. What a story. So I just felt like this is definitely a book I'm going to read again. I'm in love with these characters, all of them. Even though Gamila has already died when we start the story, we still feel her richly throughout the book. Um, Her story is just so well told. Um, The differences in cultures, uh, ideas within their household. And then as um, Rose starts living abroad as an expat in America, in New York. Um, it just, I just love how that unfolded, how those differences really added to the characters' um, arcs and their purpose in the story. So really well done. Um, is there more from this author? She had a book before this. This is her second okay, novel. I'm going to take a look at that first book she wrote and I'll definitely be reading this again um so one thing you mentioned was like is Mark to blame and I really feel like because um Gamila's connection with the uncle formed before she started showing Mark introducing Mark to the possible sources for his story this this outcome could have also happened without Mark's involvement um but it's irrelevant in the end right because Gamila's dead so um, what happened happened and everyone just has to continue living with purpose and a pure heart, good intention. Um, yeah. yeah. So what do you think of the story? Would you recommend it? What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I really love this book. I'm so glad I stole it. I really <laughs> am. It's, wow. I'm going to do that more often because they just be really good books. Okay. Disgrace. <laughs> It is. It's, it's very well written. Um, Y'all, she still got the book. I'm look. You still haven't taken it to the library? Is that the same book? Yeah, it's the same book, but I'll be checking it out. You see, Lori okay. Lightfoot, how they just take your kindness for weakness? <laughs> she don't even live in the state anymore, y'all. Listen, oh, listen. I'm going to have to snitch. Listen, I can just take it back to the library when, when? I get a chance. Okay. <laughs> Don't worry, it's gonna be okay. Y'all think the anyway. library is a free bookstore? It is not. My tax dollars do not go to you back. stealing books from the library. I'm not with. I'm gonna give it back. I'm gonna give it back for real. But anyway, it was a good book. I really like this book. I like how it was told, and I do believe uh, Mark had everything <laughs> to do with that. Um, reason why her because without him interjecting, her sister would not have been involved. And the boy wouldn't have been arrested, he, likely. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have a reason to be arrested because nobody covered him in the mm-hmm. story. Okay? That didn't happen. So, yes, I would recommend this book. I think it was really good. Uh, I enjoyed this story. I love being back in Egypt. It reminded me a little bit of the Nile, uh, Death on the Nile, um, and that kind of retelling because we talked about those places in Egypt. Yeah, not the book itself, but the um, theme of the week yeah. that we yeah, that you brought out so well. Yeah, yeah. so, um, yes, definitely would recommend it. And I look forward to... Um, Whatever she has next, what she has next. Her first book was called In the Language of Mm. Miracles. All right. And Alexis, what are we reading next week? 
Okay, so actually, we are going to take a break. Usually we take one break at the holiday. We're going to take two weeks off and we'll be dropping some episodes from our catalog. So relit time. Yeah, so we will have episodes next week and the week after. They just won't be new, new. Mm -hmm. But they good, though. Yeah, Mm -hmm. check them out if you haven't. Yep. Okay, well, thank you everyone for listening to Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday with a relit episode. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love y'all too. You can also leave a five star review for us on Spotify, please. Spotify users, go ahead and do that. It really helps us out. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit litsocietypod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read read something. something.